Okay, so thank you, Diana. Uh, this is one of my favorite conferences that I get to go to every year. And uh, when I started going to it, I realized even though I travel a lot in the fall, I will always make time to be sure that I'm here in Montana for this conference. So as Diana mentioned, I, I live in Helena. I'm originally from Great Falls, but when you're in a conference in Butte, you tend to get these conversations when you sit next to people, as just happened this morning, said, uh, so what are your Butte ties? <laughs> so I figured I, I kind of have to verify my Butte ties. My, my father-in-law was a guy named Bill O'Leary, grew up on Caledonia Street in the shadow of the IC church up there. His dad was an electrician for the Anaconda Mining Company and uh, maybe secreted out some materials to help wire the convent across the street. So, you know, he... <laughs> I think this is drooping a little bit here, but, um, and then, you know, I grew up in Great Falls, so I played against your Bulldogs uh, in the era of like Struznik and Street and Pathhausen and, and Hunsacker and Vincent and those guys, so had some good memories there. I don't know if that endears me to you or endangers me here this morning, so <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. Uh, so here's my contact information, I'll put that up at the end. I, uh, when I make these talks, a lot of times people say, oh, I have a document, or I have this, or I have that, and I'd love to keep this story going, because there's so much wisdom and experience here in this room, and that's why this is such a great history conference. You bring so much to this, your passion, your enthusiasm, your experiences, and the wisdom gained through those experiences. So I'd like to partner with you with that contact information available there. And we have an opportunity uh, to go up to the Maywa Society up at um, West Mercury Street. And in terms of building off of things, I, I happen to have my high school history teacher here, Gary Wallace. I, I don't call him Gary Wallace, I call him Mr. Wallace. So it's really cool that my high school history teacher is here and just the, the connections and, and feels like old home week, right? So that's a, that's a group of school students from Dillon, Montana, taking a tour of the Maywa that they did this spring. And the Maywa does a great job of trying to tell the states and, and Buttes Chinese history. It's not easy to tell. Now there's, there's certain ways to tell it. We can look at the raw numbers. So here's the numbers of the Chinese in Montana. In 1890, a peak of 2,532. Keep that number in mind, 2,532. That might come up in conversation a little bit later. And that's, that's, that's impressive. That 1870 number represented more than 10% of the territorial population all told. So Montana did have a large Chinese presence. And you can see that that declined, and there's a number of reasons for that decline. Sometimes people say, well, they just never intended to stay here, and so they just went home. That's a little too passive, to be honest. There was a lot more active um, expulsion that caused that decline. And the difficulty of forming families here in Montana also caused that decline as families passed on. So we've got this graph, and then I wanted to try and tell the, the history. This, this map is pretty detailed here. But I wanted to try and not just capture a map of where the Chinese were at one moment in time. So what I tried to do with this map is look at the geography where they were, the chronology of when they were at their height at that moment in any Montana settlement, and then the demography. So if we zoom in here, you can see in the year 1870, that's represented by this, uh, you know, this color, in, and Helena had 648 Chinese residents in 1870. That was more than 20% of Helena's population. But if I just had a map that was static for 1870, that's not gonna tell us how the population changed and moved across the state. So then we've got these different years. And I had to get creative with some of the years. 1891, there was a health officer's report for Butte that pegged the population of Butte at 841. Some of you will think that's quite an undercounting of Butte's Chinese population. We can talk about that in the Q&A period if you'd like. But you'll notice a key date is missing. 
There's no 1890 census, and if you remember, that was the peak of the Chinese population in Montana. Well, unfortunately, the 1890 census, details of the 1890 census were destroyed in a fire in 1922. So we've got the general numbers, but we don't have the specifics of who was living where and what occupation and age and things like that. So it's a great loss to, to United States history to have those uh, scheduled records for the 1890 census having been destroyed. Now, this tells us where they were, how large the population was. I, I capped this at 10 or more. So if there was a Chinese presence that was less than 10. I, did, I didn't go more granular than that. I do have that, those, that information, but it would just get to be quite, quite busy there. So there's some interesting things to note here. The Butte number we can talk about a little bit later. And then I mentioned my hometown, right? Great Falls. Big blank spot there. We can talk about that a little bit later. That's not part of today's talk, but it is interesting. But these are numbers. I want to get deeper. I want to know the motivations, the stresses, the goals, the obstacles, the collaborations that these Chinese Montanans had. And so how can we know that? Well, we go to the documentary record and it's not always that helpful. In 1870, the territorial census doesn't help much. So China man, China man, China woman, China boy tells us there was a Chinese presence, but it doesn't give us much more information than that. And I think this is what has made it so difficult to tell the history of Montana's Chinese population in detail because they are obscured by cultural barriers, by language barriers, and by general animosity that they faced here in, in the Big Sky State. This problem has been identified by another researcher and archaeologist named Christopher Merritt, who did his PhD work at the University of Montana. And in his book, looking at archaeological sites related to the Chinese experience in Montana, he identified this problem. And he says the lack of primary source data hinders the historical study of the Chinese in Montana. Due to their generally low social status, significant language barriers, and inherent racial stereotyping, Chinese populations do not fill the pages of historical documents. And he goes on to further define this problem. Few primary historical accounts from their perspective in Montana or from China have been identified to date. The most unfortunate part of the Chinese story is that by the 21st century, the majority known about this population is from anecdotal stories in Montana's press and biased primary source accounts. And so I looked specifically at this. Few primary historical accounts from their perspective in Montana or in China have been identified. Well, that was during Chris Merritt's work from about 2010 on, and we have since identified documents in Chinese. And my forthcoming book, as Diana mentioned, due out in May, seeks to do two things. Seeks to tell the history of Chinese Montanans in their own words as much as possible, or at least from their own cultural perspective, and through a global lens. So understanding Chinese history, world history, how it reverberated on Montana's Chinese population, and I think interestingly, how Montana's Chinese population influenced the events back in China. And that's what I seek to do. It wasn't easy to do this. Here are some of the documents you can see that we found. A little closer look there, and you'll notice the Metals Bank and Trust there. I found these documents in the summer of 2010 and uh, up at the Montana Historical Society. They're not from Helena. They're from a gentleman in Butte, and they were housed at the Maywa Society, the Maywa building, when it was in a state of quite uh, dire disrepair. And so when they were found in the 1980s, it was decided that leaks and possible vandalism and things like that could threaten these collections. And so decisions were made to try and preserve these, and the Montana Historical Society was approached, and they 
graciously uh, preserved these documents. So these are documents from a Chinese gentleman in, in Butte that are presently housed up in Montana at the Montana Historical Society. When I found these in 2010, I was spending my summers in Montana, but my academic year I was living in Shanghai, China. And so I thought this is very interesting. I was teaching American history, and I was trying to teach American history through an Asian American history lens because those were my students. And so I talked to the researchers and the great archivists and librarians at the Montana Historical Society. I said, tell me about this collection. What do you know? And they said, well, we just don't know anybody who reads Chinese. And I said, I, I know a few people who read Chinese. <laughs> it wasn't that easy. It wasn't that easy. Some of you, I'm sure, know the intricacies of the Chinese language make it difficult. These were written in the 1880 period and on when Chinese writing of characters was in what's called the traditional script. After the Chinese Communist Revolution in 1949, Mao Zedong and the Communists, to try and spread literacy, simplified the written script of Chinese characters. So while I digitized these and sent them back to some of my Chinese colleagues in Shanghai, they only read simplified. These are written and traditional. And so my Chinese language teachers could only read about 30% of these documents. So we had to get creative. And what we did is I put together a multi-generational transnational translation team of high school students, because our, the school that I was teaching at in Shanghai had students from around the world. It was an, it's an international school. And I realized that while my mainland People's Republic of China students couldn't read traditional script, any of my families that were from Taiwan, where the nationalists fled after the, the defeat in the Civil War, they preserved the traditional form of writing. And my families from Hong Kong learned the traditional form of writing. So we got those families together, and we got together grandmas and grandpas who had learned to read and write back before the simplification of the language, and we put together this team to try and translate these documents. So it was truly a community-wide effort with students. My Chinese teachers could definitely help to a certain degree, especially with the cultural aspects of things, history teachers, parents, grandparents. And we did this, when I dream, I dream big. So I thought, let's bring a research team to Helena, and we'll have a translation team working at the same time in Shanghai. So we had people on site digitizing these documents, sending them back to the research team of about 15 uh, researchers back there. For every document that we translated, we had two different teams translated independently, and then we would compare that document to try and come up with the most accurate translation that we could. It was a really exciting opportunity. Did this in 2012 and 2014 for two different collections. Here you can see, this is back even before kind of iPhones to digitize everything. And this student, looking over her shoulder, caught the history bug, went on to get her graduate degree, and now works at the Newberry Library in Chicago in a history profession. I don't want to claim solely because of this, but she definitely caught, caught the bug here. Now, what was this collection all about? It had about, the first collection that we translated was from 1880 to the 1920s. About 100 documents, mostly letters, some maps, some prescriptions, some bills that will become important. And they were from China to a gentleman living in Butte. Okay, so the, the return letters would be back in southern China. We don't have that end of the correspondence. So these really testify more to life in southern China, but then the pressures that his family was putting on this gentleman living in Butte. Who was this gentleman? We translated his given name to be De Chuan, and this is how my students pronounced it in Mandarin. There's no chance that he spoke Mandarin. He probably spoke Cantonese or even a sub-dialect called Toisanghua or Taishanese, as we'll talk about in a little bit. But also, there's no chance that he probably went by this name in official records. We were not able to find and corroborate him in census data, in immigration records, in anything else, 
I think because he came in under an assumed name, an assumed identity. I think he came in as a paper son, which was a strategy to try and get into Gold Mountain or America to make money for your family back home, and you had to bend the law a little bit. I heard from an earlier session today that we bend laws in Butte, right? We, we bend rules in Butte. He did too, I think. I think he came in under the uh, identity of somebody else who had the ability to come in, whereas he would not have. And that might have been a merchant identity, and he was not a merchant. That might have been uh, as a, a U.S. citizen, and there's some real com complex aspects there. But I think he took on an identity, went by an official identity when dealing with American government officials, but his given name was likely De Chuan, and probably from the Tan or the Hum family. So we've not been able to more broadly corroborate who he was. And now I mentioned that's how it would be pronounced in Mandarin, De Chuan. He probably would have pronounced his given name as Tak Chun or Duk Chun. Okay, so there's a number of layers to try and get to exactly who he was. But we know a lot about him and people like him because of the research that we've done. So he was definitely from southern China. And you hear that a lot. You hear, well, they're from Guangdong province or Kuangtung province as it used to be called. Guangdong province, but we can get even more specific. The vast majority of the Chinese who came to America and came to Montana were from Taishan County, this county here. One of the four counties in this area, and it's a sub part of Guangdong province. And we know that the vast majority of them came uh, from this area. 80% of the Chinese who came to the United States were from Taishan County. And why? Well, you know the basics of immigration. You got push factors, you got pull factors. There were certain things attracting him and people like him to America, and there were definitely things pushing him from Taishan. The annual harvest provided food for only half the year. The rest of the time, foreign rice must be bought. When the ships cannot sail, fires in kitchens immediately stop burning. The able-bodied go abroad. The fields are clogged with weeds. Daughters are often drowned rather than raised. A tough life. From 1851 to 1908 in Taishan County, there were 14 floods, seven typhoons, four earthquakes, two droughts, four epidemics, five famines, a 12-year ethnic war. Oh, and the Taiping uh, Rebellion, which happened from 1850 to 1864, that killed more than 20 million people. So there were a lot of factors pushing people out. And Taishan was a particularly, um, it, it wasn't very fertile. So growing crops and making a living there was difficult. And so many men from Taishan went out, and many of them came to America. And so now we get into the letters addressed to De Chuan and the pressures on De Chuan from his family members back there. Brother De Chuan, time passes so fast. It's been 10 years since we parted, and you went to America. I had seen my brother come home on a boat. Because of this, I can't sleep and I can't eat. I hope that my brother in America has good health, good business, plenty of money, buy a house soon, and get our family to have a reunion. Then I would be happy and satisfied. From a different letter, time has passed. You left our country for more than 20 years. Our family eagerly expects you to come back according to the original plan. It will be best that you can get married here. You can have offspring and forefathers and glorify our family. It is a fundamental family tradition. And so we see the pressures on De Chuan and people like him travel back and forth, the expectations of going out to make money, but we want you to come back, but we need you to go out this back and forth. And the letters are full of that. Come home and get married. Send more money. Come home and get married. Send more money. They're full of that. It's hard for him to do both. I don't think his family understood how difficult travel back and forth was, because if he was in here with an assumed identity, in here illegally, 
every moment, every time that he interacted with a port official or a border official, that could be found out. And so going back and forth, there was a lot more movement of the Chinese back and forth than we kind of expect, but I don't think he was able to go back and forth very often. And the family pressures, this idea that he needed to come back home and get married and produce offspring, it's very important in Chinese culture that you produce descendants who then venerate the ancestors and keep the family happy. It's a family tradition. It is expected of him. Could he find a wife in Montana? That was difficult. That was difficult. Marriage options in Montana? Now you might say, oh, there's plenty of women in Montana. What's the problem? Not many Chinese women. The ratio of Chinese men to Chinese women in Montana. Now, why was that? One answer is that it was not terribly accepted in Chinese culture for women to go out, and so women would not have made the journey. That's, we're finding that to be less and less true. In other areas where the Chinese from that region went out for work in Southeast Asia, oftentimes women did go with them. And so that's only part of the story, and I don't think a good answer. In fact, it was American governmental uh, policies. The Page Act of 1875, in an attempt to bar prostitutes coming in, and yes, a lot of the Chinese women who did come work as, did work as prostitutes, but not all. But in an attempt to bar prostitutes, they tried to bar basically all Chinese women. And one of the representatives putting this act forward, we do not want to establish additional Oriental families here. Quote, they were intentional about making it difficult for the Chinese to put down roots and to make the next generation of Chinese into Chinese Americans. Chinese could not become naturalized citizens, so the only path to citizenship was to be born on American soil, and the lawmakers wanted to make that as difficult as possible. So there were very few Chinese women here. And so this gets into the question of, are they bachelor societies? Oftentimes you'll hear that. The Chinese men, they were bachelor societies. I don't think that quite gets it, because what we know is that many of them were married. 41%, and that increased to 44% of Chinese men in Montana were married. But 90% of the Chinese men were without their spouse. The spouse was back in southern China. So it's not correct to call them bachelor societies. It's really split households as part of a diversified global strategy to support families back in Taishan County in southern China. So it's a split household intentional strategy, partially necessitated by the American laws, plus Chinese culture. And that family strategy shows how they would intentionally send the sons out to different places to work. So this is not De Chuan, this is another brother. He says, I've been working at a dumpling restaurant. The wage per month is three yuan, which is just enough for me to keep a living. And another brother is working as a farmer in our hometown in order to care for and sustain our aging mother. So some were close to home and some went much further from home. De Niu, another brother, went to work in Hong Kong. De Jong just returned to Luzon in the Philippines to make money. So it's a global diversified strategy. And yes, America is important to that. And maybe De Chuan can aid that. One of the letters requests this of him. Please get a birth certificate for younger brother Wu Qin so that he can go to Gold Mountain, America to earn money. And that would not have been legal within the American system. They're trying to play the paper-son system there. So that's one pressure that's on De Chuan. But this was very much a diversified global earning strategy. So that if things uh, were good in the Philippines, that brother would be able to support the family back in southern China. If they decrease there, you've got these other diversified interests in America as well. But one brother wasn't pulling his weight. 
De Xu. And so they write to De Chuan here in Butte, and they, they ask him, I still cannot find where Brother De Xu is. No news and no money. As soon as you get the information about De Xu, please write to tell us so that we will not worry too much. What might have happened to him? I mean, think of the possibilities. He might be dead. Work was dangerous. He might have been arrested. If he never appears back in the letter correspondence, then he probably did disappear in a mining accident, a railroad accident, something like that. So let's keep our eyes on Deshu. He does reappear, and he becomes very useful as a, a counterexample. I hope you, De Chuan, won't be like Deshu, who doesn't care for his parents' ancestors and his uh, his parents and his ancestors' incense. Doesn't offer to the ancestors who've gone before. He wanders outside and changed his name and bears descendants for other people. Yeah, he got married, but he has no home in his hometown. When he meets his brothers and other relatives, he is sorrowful and ashamed. He wants to bring his wife and children home, but he has no house in his hometown. I'm writing to you, De Chuan, to tell my brother to decide on buying the house. We have to think about each other. Be a man, my brother. So the pressure is on this guy in Butte. And De Xu has arisen again, but he's, he's, not, he's not doing what he should. And that counterexample is constantly brought up as an example of how you should live. Now, the financial pressures were considerable. I'm at home and I'm hating the price of rice. Every yuan can only buy three to four liters of rice. So I want to let you know the cost of living, including oil and rice, is getting expensive. Yeah, we received your 100 silver yuan on April 7th. However, it's not enough and we still owe some money. How did he send money back and forth? He did, because these letters often say, we got this much, we, you, you mentioned this amount, we didn't get it. Always they had a sense that he had been sending money. De Xu hadn't, De Chuan had. How does he do that? There's three general ways. Either you could send it with a returning relative or friend. That was the most reliable way because you trusted that person, but it was infrequent. These weren't going back and forth every six months. So if somebody happened to be going, yeah, you could give them some money to give to your actual family. Another way was uh, with a 5% fee, you, for a 5% fee, you could hire a courier who was specifically tasked to take your money to your family. That's a pretty steep charge. Instead, for 2%, you could hire a gold mountain firm that specialized in these. And these were the mercantiles throughout the, the Chinatowns in the American West. Probably the Wachong Thai mercantile up at the Mei Wah probably did this type of thing. Served as a bank, and so work, Chinese workers would give the money to the mercantile. The, the mercantile usually didn't transfer it as money. They would usually invest in goods, sometimes silver and gold, and then resell that in Hong Kong, take a profit, but then also parse out what was due to the families and get it delivered in that way. And this was the most common way. These gold mountain firms was the most common way for money to be transferred. And in terms of the reliance on foreign earned income, families in Taishan that had workers living abroad, there's a 1934 study that was done, they relied on 75 to 80% of their household income was earned abroad. Okay, so this guy and people like him were supporting vast families back in Taishan. And if that ever got interrupted, it would, it would be deadly. I mentioned the year of that study, 1934-35. It's about to get interrupted by World War II. Okay, and that reverberates throughout this story as well, but I don't have time for that today. But the pressures are still on Dichuan. I do not have a single cent, writes one of his brothers. I cannot figure out any other solution to purchase the house. Brother, please let me know if you intend to send the money back. Is it possible to send back three or four hundred of silver to pay the first stage of the house building costs? And years later, 
We still do not have our own house. But there is a property for sale near the bamboo forest. Please write us back as soon as possible and let us know if we should buy it. This is just about him and his family, but men from Taishan took on vast obligations. And it was said that the men from Taishan climbed thousands of mountains and crossed tens of thousands of rivers for no other reason than the livelihood and happiness of the family. What was his actual status in Montana? His family believed that he prospered. We hope you make money through your gold and silver. You have a great flow of income from your very good business, so you don't need to worry because your hands are bathed in gold. He was, the records show that he was in deep debt in Montana. He was borrowing against what he could here to send as much as he could back home. So he was struggling. It's likely that he worked in a laundry or a restaurant, and so he was not living a very lavish life here just to keep people alive back home. And that brings us to the touching story of his mother. We have no idea what, his father, what happened to his father. He probably died when the boys were quite young. But his mother does appear in the records. Our kind old mother is in very old age towards the last few years of her life. If you've made your fortune, please come back home. This way you can repay mother the grace of her parenting and her brothers can sit together, chat, and enjoy being together. Mother is so old and weak now. When you have enough money to purchase a boat ticket, I hope that you can come to visit and comfort her. It is our biggest wish to see you come home. We do have one letter from his mother. Last month I was very sick, but luckily the illness is cured. However, I'm not completely recovered yet, thus money would be very helpful. I only wish for your health, but please work hard. And then she warns, like many mothers in Butte probably warned, and she wasn't in Butte, but she maybe had a sense of it. Don't waste your time wandering in casinos and red light districts. <laughs> when you get money, regardless of the amount, return home immediately. After that, you may return to work again. Dushu does come back on the record, and he writes, I don't like this guy. Our mother had been sick since last June. Sadly, she passed away the evening of September 18th last year. Sorry that I didn't let you know earlier. Please forgive me. When mother was sick, we deposited money for her treatment. It was not enough and we still owe. We received your 100 silver yuan on April 7th. I am also thankful for the 20 silver yuan you sent to me. Since we still owe money to others, could you please send us more so that we can clear our debts? How I hate that mother has no money for burial. So we get a sense of, of the pressures that Duchuan was on, but this is a micro history of this man and his family. I think, though, we can extrapolate it to try and learn more about Montana's Chinese and get past just knowing of them as a Chinaman from the 1870 census or the fact that there were 41 Chinese living in Basin, 648 in Helena, 12 in Pony, 49 in Livingston. I think we can apply what we know about Duchuan from their own words to the Chinese more broadly across America. And that's what I seek to do. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it when it comes out in May of 2020 by the University of Nebraska Press. Thank you very much.